Hi, I'm Sarah Devlin, and I'm a news editor for Washington Square News. Earlier this week, I got the opportunity of a lifetime. I was making breakfast when I got an email from my editor telling me that I would be interviewing ta Coates later that evening. Coates, the Atlantic's national correspondent, began his three-year stint as a distinguished writer-in-resident uh, at NYU in September. Coates is not just a prolific and important writer on the national scene, but a writer personally important to me. Um, I actually wrote an essay for my writing the essay class on him, and he's someone who I respect immensely. His work is not just daring and radical. He's written a 10,000-word essay arguing the case for reparations, but eloquent and gorgeous. And without further ado, my interview with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Thanks for sitting down with me. Um, so I think I'm going to start you off with two kind of easier questions, then move into something a little more challenging. Um, <laughs> Um, so why did you take the position at NYU? Um, what do you kind of hope to do in your time here? Well, I taught at um, MIT some time ago, back in 2012, and it was a really, and then also actually um, at CUNY's J School uh, at 14, and it was a, um, a deeply, deeply rewarding experience. I found that talking about writing um, forced me, with people who were trying to learn how to write, it, it really forced me to um, be able to explain why things worked and why things were beautiful. And if you practice long enough, you will begin to do certain things intuitive, which is good, but then you forget like well, why, why it's happening. And it's nothing like having to explain that um, to somebody who is just trying to learn um, and doesn't understand. That's the first reason. The second reason is um, I'm, I'm very much a product of folks that took time to educate me you know, on, on how to write and how to, you know, read and how to report. Um, so the second thing is, you know, it's kind of, you know, the basic debt to, you know, uh, pay that back. The third thing is, um, <laughs> I mean, I think like anybody else in a practice, you know, I have certain ideas about how a practice should be undertaken. Um, and I think that maybe some of those ideas are valuable. Um, and I look forward to the opportunity to pass those on. What are some of those ideas? What are the things that are important to know and do when you're writing and reporting? Um, this is going to sound small, but I don't think it's small. I don't think journalists pay enough attention to beautiful language. Um, I'm sort of biased in this way because I actually started off as a poet before I was a journalist. But one of the things I always try to accomplish in my writing is not merely um, the act of being factually correct, and pulling together a factually convincing argument, but putting together a haunting argument. Um, putting things together that people will, in, in such a way that you will remember. I always tell people I want you to go to bed thinking about it, I want you to wake up thinking, thinking about it, and go through your week thinking about it. It's not simply the information that carries that. It's the tools with which you use to actually convey the information to, to the reader. And a large part of that is, is language. Um, and I think, um, People miss all the time the role of, of, of language and beautiful language um, in convincing folks. We're, we're at this point right now in our country where um, this is obsession with what facts can I get that will allow me to convince the other you know, side of, of a particular point. But I don't really think it's enough to aim at the head. I really do believe you got to aim at the heart too. People have to feel it. Um, and the way to, you know, best journalist that I, you know, love, you know, 
the Kate Booth, the Elizabeth Colbert, the um, Colbert, sorry, Colbert, Colbert, um, Ian Parker, Ian Frazier, obviously my hero James Baldwin. Um, what these folks have and had was language. You know, now, you know, they, Elizabeth Colbert is a great reporter, don't get me wrong. You know, Ian Parker is a great reporter, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, Ian Frazier is a great reporter, but they know how to deploy the English language in such a way to organize that reporting and make it do something more than, you know, simply you nod and say, that's correct, and then walk away, you know? Um, Emily's press release mentioned that you're teaching both graduate and undergraduate classes. Um, do you have any idea what that might look like? Yeah, I'm supposed to alternate <laughs> undergrad, then grad, undergrad, grad. I think I'm going undergrad first. What do you think you'll teach in those classes? What I just talked about. <laughs> exactly what I just talked about. Um, uh, how do you choose what to write about? And what drives you to write? What motivates you to write? I choose by the thing that does exactly what I just said. In other words, the thing that haunts me. The thing that I can't, you know, uh, stop thinking about. The thing that I go to bed thinking about and waking up thinking about. The thing that I can't let go. That's the thing that I should be writing about. It's the thing that sticks with me. Um, that's always the, the driving force. Um, so yesterday, as you tweeted about um, the NFL, mm -hmm. kind of there was a very public demonstration against Trump in part in support of Colin Kaepernick, um, and you compared him, uh, Mr. Kaepernick, to Ida B. Wells, uh, Medgar Evers, among other uh, civil rights icons. Um, you also said in a previous interview that there is a weight to it, a current, a force, a vector to it. Um, Wait, what? Sorry, that last one. A vector to it. Um, with Ezra Klein, it's cool. Um, Sorry. Do you think that these kinds of protests, when you have people like Stephen Curry and LeBron James speaking out against Mr. Trump and what he stands for and his ideals, do you think that that is enough of kind of a pushback um, against him to necessitate real change? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think we're at an inflection point right now, or? Uh, do you see kind of us descending further and further? Well, who knows? I mean, who knows? There's no, there's no way to tell that. Um, I, I think that the protests of athletes are very, very important. Um, but I think they're misunderstood. Um, you know, one thing you, you were talking about what I was tweeting yesterday and the comparison I made, and the reason why I made that comparison was because there was this response that, well, most Americans, you know, don't find these protests to be particularly popular and don't support them. So what? So what, when, when have the majority of Americans ever supported the protests of African Americans or any other minority fighting for equality? Never. You know, it's not like when Susan B. Anthony was arguing for, you know, women's suffrage. In the 19th century, most men thought that was a good idea. Or thought her method of protest was, was a good idea. It's never like that. It's then, you know, the point I was making is some of the very people that these folks lionized, Martin Luther King, it's not like Martin Luther King. You know, it's not like most people in, uh, Montgomery thought the bus boycott was a good idea. Most white people didn't think that was a good idea. You know, um, the battle is for the future. You know, and, and it's quite clear to me that, you know, what these guys are, the question is not what most Americans think about what these guys are doing right now, but what their children and grandchildren are gonna think about it. That's the real question, you know? Um, and it's quite clear to me, the historical pattern is, is pretty obvious that in the moment, you know, people find political protests to be inconvenient or or whatever, and then, you know, with some reflection, they tend to feel differently. Um, what's something you need to believe to get you through your day? Huh. I guess that I'm being a good father. 
Um, not being a good husband. Um, those are probably the two biggest. Yeah, those are the two biggest by far. <laughs> um, what book are you reading right now? Oh, um, uh, it's by this historian David Brian Davis. Um, reading this on the train, falling asleep. The Problem of Slavery in Western Culture. Very good. It's a classic book for historians. He wrote this trilogy, and I hope to be able to get through all three of them. Um, but right now, I'm on the first one. I got about 100 pages left. Um, one thing I've noticed about your work is that it's, it's deeply scholarly and academic. Um, you are very rigorous in your research, in your reporting, um, and I think especially in your research. Um, what kind of drew you why, why, I mean, why do you why do you write your stories that way? Because I was a history major in college, and um, I've always been very, very interested in history. And when I was in school, one of the things I noticed about journalists, journalists, opinion journalists particularly, is how loose they often tended to be in their arguments and how poor their sense of history um, really was. And that's a thing that continues even today, regrettably. Um, I shouldn't be a standout for that. That should be the standard. That should be normal. Um, is there something that draws you particularly to history as opposed to, I mean, you research some sociology, some economics, yeah, some, I, use, I mean, a little yeah. bit of everything. Yeah. Um, but I think that your most salient arguments are usually historical. Right. Um, why, why history specifically? Because it says why it happened. <laughs> it says why it happened. You know, um, and I think um, oftentimes to avoid understanding why it happened, um, people ignore history. And you just have to bring them back over and over. History is your identity. I mean, what are you except the things that you've done? You know, that's how we know you. And so um, our country is the things that it's done. That's who we are, you know, and... Um, You know, when I'm writing about America, in that sense, history is, is just, it, it has to be that. It has to be part of it. It's essential um, to any process of, of, of trying to understand or articulate or, or, or critique the present. Uh, what have you learned uh, from, I mean, I guess in the past nine months or so under Trump, but something that has kind of, something that's come up that you haven't expected? Uh, nothing. Nothing, wow. Nothing. Really? Wow. Oh. No. I mean, there have been moments when I was, what is it, shocked but not surprised? I, I don't, and I, I'm not, that's not because I'm me. There's no difference between what Trump is and what he said he was. There's really not any difference. I mean, so it's not like, it's because I'm, you know what I mean, I knew it all. I mean, I don't think there's much, it's only surprising for people who thought he was joking or who don't take you know the, the rhetoric of white supremacy and bigotry seriously um, that's the only reason why any of this would be surprising it's not surprising at all he's exactly who he, who he ran as you can't accuse him of hypocrisy you can't say that you know um, so you said you were a history major in college but I know you dropped out of Howard University um, but what, what do you think we as students should be trying to do and to gain uh, in 
in our time at college. You should learn a second language. You should not leave college without having learned a second language. If you leave college without learning a second language, you've failed big time. What makes you say that? Because it's one of the few skills, um, one of the few tangible skills, whether you have a degree or not, that will always be useful. It just, and it's, you know, and you have four years to really burrow in and, 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 and you know, lock lock in on that you know if i were you know here in school right now um i make sure to take a language i would probably try to go to um the middlebury uh, camp that they have middlebury uh, academy over the summer i would probably do a semester abroad in the country of the language that i was studying it's no excuse it's no excuse um so i know you lived in paris for a little bit um and i did myself as well mm -hmm. I learned french there went to french school oh, tu parles français? Oui, un peu. Ah, okay okay oui, uh, on peut continuer en français, vous savez. Pourquoi pas? Ou un allemand, un chinois, un japonais. Si tu préfères. Non, non, en anglais. En anglais. You have, you have a really good accent. Merci. I, 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 I really mean that. Um, but, uh, it, it messes me up sometimes because people think my French is better than it actually is. <laughs> Especially in France. It was a big problem because people would talk too fast. They thought, oh, you're fine, and I'm actually not fine. Um, uh, so just tell me a little about that. I mean, what was it like? I mean, I kind of have a, you know, it's, it felt ethereal at the time. I mean, I was mm -hmm. in middle school, but um, what was that like for you? You said you were when? You went when? Uh, uh, between sixth and eighth grade. Okay. Um, oh, so your French is probably really good then. Yeah, I went to bilingual school. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you took it at a really young age. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you're probably, you're probably straight. Um, <laughs> It was an incredible experience. You know, I was over there with my family. My son was in a, a school that was supposed to be bi bilingual. Where did you go? Did you go to Johnny Manuel? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, my son was supposed to go to Johnny Manuel. We couldn't get it straight. So he ended up in just in a straight French school. Which <laughs> was funny. He had taken three years of French, so it was okay. But it's nothing like getting thrown right in. It's totally different. It's not the same as being in a class. Um, so he was there, um, and it was really, really good for him because he got fluent. Uh, he, um, it was a different, you know, pace of life, you know, uh, we only came back because my wife went to med school. That was the only, because we, I think we wouldn't have come back. You know, we really, really loved it over there. Um, it was, um, you know, you can feel a certain way about a country's politics and feel a certain way about his culture, you know? Like, well, obviously I don't like the politics in the, of the South, but when I'm in the South, there's something about the culture that I really like a lot, you know? Um, it was kind of the same way in France. You know, there were big problems with um, the politics, but the culture, I just, I loved. You know, I loved how formal people were in terms of their eating. I, I, I loved how people didn't talk really loud in restaurants. <laughs> You know, and how they looked at you crazy if, if you did. I love the thing that most people don't love about Parisians. I loved how brusque they were <laughs> and direct and you know what I mean? Like I never had any problems wondering what they thought. You know what I mean? I always knew. I always knew. Um, and we made some great friends over there. We just really enjoyed it. It's great. Um, I want to go back to the language piece. You said you have to aim for the heart, not just the head. Um, how do you do that? I mean, how do you do that with an audience that maybe uh, doesn't understand where you're coming from or doesn't 
But that's the advantage of aiming for the heart. They don't have to understand what you're coming from. They can, you, I try to write very, very aggressively and directly. You know, like when I, too many people, like when you say beautiful language, they think you mean like these five dollar words, but that's not really what you mean. What you actually mean is stripping something down to the most aggressive point you, you, you know, you, you possibly can have. Drawing a picture that's as clear as possible um, in, in the brain for people. Um, I, I don't think you have to really, I, I, you know, like, great literature and great writing and great journalism is supposed to be able to transcend all of that. And I think, think, the, the way it does is actually in its particularities, you know, this whole thing about the particular to get to the general, I, I think that's what it is. If I'm doing this right, you really should not need to come from, you know, inner city Baltimore to understand. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know there's a whole thing now that people say, well, you know, if, you, if you're not black, you wouldn't understand. You, wouldn't. This. you really should be able to understand. <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't make you me. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that you'll get it as if you lived in my skin. But I think you can, you know, get a reasonable approximation you know, of, um, of of the experience. That's my job in the writing. You know, um, and I find that the way to do that, and this is my own theory, is not by holding the reader's hands, not by being nice, not by, you know, either or, or going, you know, back and forth on the other handism or others. No, you try to be very, very direct because the reader doesn't have much time. You know, the reader has smartphones and the reader has... PlayStations and the reader has, you know, uh, all sorts of other things that they could be doing besides spending time with your five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty thousand word article. And so um, I try to be very much aware of that, you know, and, and write in a way that's as engaging as possible, you know, to compete with all of those other things. How did you learn how to do that? Well, I would, it's funny, I started off in poetry, as I mentioned, which people don't think of as doing that, but um, actually poetry's whole thing is to strip down words, is to strip away. So I had that as, an, as a value. And then I went to, um, my first job when I was 20 years old was for this journalist named David Carr. Uh, used to work at the New York Times. He's my first boss. And there was a huge emphasis on writing there. There's a huge, huge emphasis on being able to write well. Um, and I've read a ton. I'm going to gently tell you to take this class. <laughs> Will we continue this? Is yes. that okay? Yeah, Do you I have mean, another wrap-up question? Yeah, when, you, uh, when you teach your undergraduate class. Uh, well, it's next semester, so. Um, so um, I guess I'd just like to end by asking you um, what your favorite place in New York is. Um, maybe it's a park, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's... Oh, Harlem. I adore Harlem. Harlem's great. It has a um, a kind of energy that I mean, honestly, the only other place that comes closest closer to me is down here, you know, West Village. But Harlem, I, I just adore. I just adore. It's the first neighborhood I ever fell in love with. Period. And the first neighborhood in New York that I, I fell in love with. Um, I came to Harlem as adult as an adult for the first time when I was I think I was probably 24. And I got off a train at 116th in Lenox, and it was a Saturday, and it was an evening, and there were all these people, with all these places to go, and all of them were black, and I had never seen anything like that. 
And I just thought, man, I, I want to be here. <laughs> I think about it all the time. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's great. All right, Mr. Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you.